it's good to talk about dad sometimes and like to feel sad about it. I don't do it enough. Yeah. Also, I can't believe it's been seven years. I know. I know. I still will say to people like, oh, my dad died a few years ago. Yeah. But like it doesn't register to me as seven. It feels still somehow like more recent than that. Yeah. I've been in a really weird place since my dad died, and my dad died seven years ago, so I've been here for a while. I've been doing what so many of us do when we lose a big primary relationship. I've been excavating it, examining it, trying to make sense of it, trying to make sure that it mattered, that I mattered, that I'm seeing things clearly, that I'm seeing a relationship clearly. But it's just so hard because when one person is dead, the relationship becomes a bit one-sided. Your vision is obscured by all of your own biases, by your commitment to your version of the truth, to your side of the story. It's hardly fair. And a part of me also feels a little pathetic. I'm an adult. I have my own children. I've been in therapy for what feels like a hundred years, and yet... I am still untangling not just what my dad meant to me, but what I meant to my dad. I'm one of four children, and one of the benefits of having siblings is having witnesses. We all experienced our childhoods and our father differently, but in all of those angles, there's something. There's a fact check. There's a gut check. There's a validation of some things if not of others. You you knew dad longer than I did. Eight years longer. Eight years longer. Eight years longer. You were his first child. What kind of a dad was dad to you? Ooh. Um... That's me and my big sister, Megan. I know we sound a lot alike. And this is me talking with my big brother and Megan's little brother, Austin. Okay, so growing up, for you, what kind of a dad was dad? Oh, man. Uh, Absent, I suppose, is the one-word answer that encapsulates it. Um, he was like there, but not there, you know, he, uh, I don't know. He just wasn't, uh, emotionally available. I remember like, you know, you'd, you'd want to be able to spend time with him, but it would not really manifest. Right. And he would ask me to play like catch. You know, and he would, I don't know, it was just so demoralizing for some reason. It was like there was never much, you know, positive reinforcement. He just got mad about everything. And it just made me feel like a piece of shit, you know? Like he would like throw the ball and like, you know, make me like do grounders or whatever. Right. And the ball would get past me and he'd be like, God damn it. You know? And like, 
you know, and then he'd do it again and like get in front of the goddamn ball, you know, like he would be throwing me the ball and it would be like smacking, you know, into the glove pretty hard. Right. And it would, it would hurt. And he like would kind of mock me for it in a way. I wrote in 2017 in our 10th episode that I spent my childhood both adoring and despising my father. And kids are like this. I have a four-year-old, and today he told me I never even wanted a mom. And also, you are the most best mom in the entire universe. It's like, make up your mind, kid. But when I was growing up, it felt like my dad couldn't make up his mind. Like he couldn't decide what kind of dad he was or how he felt about me. Some days he was warm and hilarious. He'd take me in the backyard to play catch. We'd watch dumb comedies and eat pizza, green olive and mushroom. And he'd read to us in bed, not just regular kids' books, but big books like Oliver Twist. I'd tuck up next to him and I would feel so safe and so loved and so happy. But not always. And not for all of us. I don't know. I just, to be honest, I never really quite felt adequate enough Mm. for him. And he, like, I always just felt like a disappointment. I feel like dad had like different versions of himself. And some versions were like, I remember he would take Austin and I to the Heights Theater We saw the man from Snowy River and it was like, we didn't do that much as a family, like go out to do things that cost money. And so it was like, I just, for some reason that is seared in my memory of him taking us to see that movie and getting popcorn and just like, and it was, it was, it was a good movie. He had two speeds. He was either very present and remarkably tender, or he was just kind of not there emotionally. He was physically present, but not really connected. I mean, think of the number of times like we would be at the dinner table and he would just be doing a crossword. I'd forgotten sort of that feeling of absence, even though he was present, you know, like he, he was solitary. He did his laundry himself and his laundry was separate from ours. He like spent a lot of time alone, which now with four children, I also un- understand. I'm like, I don't want to be around him. <laughs> like, I want, <laughs> yeah. I want to be alone. I want to read this book. I want to do it alone. And like, it was punctuated by this sort of like to be me at the time, like very explosive anger. Yes, like, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah. So maybe three speeds uh, <laughs> because the anger would come out really unexpectedly, and I remember like always wondering like where did that come from. And as a child thinking, how did I cause that? How did I trigger that? How can I not do that? I never knew when something I did or said would make my dad laugh or make him explode in anger. Normal things that kids do, like make noise or fight with each other or even, yes, spill nail polish remover, would set him off and I wouldn't just feel like I'd ruined a chair, but that I had ruined the world. He could be sometimes this storm cloud personified. He'd yell at me, and I'd yell at him, and then I'd go upstairs and write something in my journal like, I HATE MY DAD, all caps, a full page of exclamation marks. 
but I still loved my dad, even if he wasn't exactly the dad I wanted. I wanted a TV dad. I wanted a dad like Danny Tanner who would talk me through my big feelings and big events, who would sit on the edge of my bed and ask, hey, what's up, as music swells, and then he would pull the answer out of me. And I remember seeing other families where, like, their dad was really interested or, like, Mm. really, like, gave them a lot of attention. And that wasn't really the norm. But when he did give you his attention, it was, like, really glorious. As I got older, the dynamic changed mostly because I changed. I knew my father's limitations and what to expect from him. I knew that to connect with him, I had to go to his level. So... I started the girls' golf team in high school because he loved golf. And in college, I read James Joyce. I hated it. I hate Joyce so much. I brought up politics when the issue was something we could both agree on, like there is certainly an election happening. That's undeniable. We all grew up knowing that our dad had been a Marine in Vietnam, that he went when he was 17 years old, that he enlisted instead of waiting to be drafted that people he had served with had died. Dad never liked the kind of idolization of veterans. And I think part of the reason was that I think he was very conflicted about his own experience. Like in some ways, he was very proud of being a Marine. And in other ways, I think he was really scarred by what he experienced in Vietnam. And I don't even know if he ever fully processed it. And, you know, there's like the letter he wrote to mom where what he's describing is just this extreme compartmentalization. And I think that's really how dad survived was by compartmentalizing different areas of his life. And if you saw him, you'd think that Vietnam didn't affect dad at all, that he'd beaten the odds and turned out just fine. He was sober from 1978 until he died in 2014. He was married to my mom for almost 40 years, and he had a good career. He didn't wear Vietnam externally the way so many others do, or did. But it was in there, and it trickled out, the way unhealed pain tends to do, mostly in his anger. A year and a half after my dad's death, it was 2016, and I was working on the first season of this show, and my dad's death was not something I had uh, taken time to process, and I would not have told you I was processing it when I took our original TTFA producer, Hans, down to Houston for a Marine Corps reunion to meet with some of the men who had served with my father. But of course, (laughs) that's what I was trying to do. I was connecting with these men, sitting them down for hours-long interviews because I wanted to connect with my father, and I couldn't. Uh, my name is Curtis Gritzmacher. I, I went by a nickname of Grits that I carried uh, as a young kid all the way up through Vietnam and carried to this day. 
I would say hello to you. My name is Pete Martinez. I'm known as Texas Pete in San Antonio because uh, my license plate says I'm Texas Pete. <laughs> I have a purple heart on my plate that nobody else can have. And uh, I'm a hell of a nice guy once you get to meet me. I might not look like one because I've never smiled, but I'm a hell of a good guy. So you want me on your corner. That trip became our Semper Fi episode. We discovered one of the biggest moments in my father's time in Vietnam, the death of a Marine named Felipe Herrera, and so much more. And making that episode was deeply meaningful for me and also very affecting for me and for my mother who came with us and for Hans who sat in hotel rooms with me and these men and heard horrible things and listened to us cry while holding a boom mic above his head for hours at a time. What a hero. I know it's not unusual and it's not unique that my father never sat me down and said, "Mm, my daughter, here's a list of the horrible things I did at war when I was a teenager. None of the men he served with had told their kids much of anything either. This is Curtis back in 2016. I think the situation was that we didn't want to share our guilt and our sadness that we had through the loss of our brothers and the hardship that we went through. And we didn't want to admit to anybody that we did kill the enemy. You know, we wanted to be honorable. And we didn't want to talk about it, so we held it away from everybody. And uh, I guess we were so proud that we didn't want to break down in front of our wife or our parents or our children. So we kept this as a secret within our soul and heart. And this is Henry in 2016. What does your daughter know? Well, she says knew I was a Marine. My dad didn't talk to me about much. No, he wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> and we climbed around a lot over there, but uh, I guess those times over there were sacred, were sacred to your dad. I think nobody ever had to tell me not to ask about it. Mm-hmm. But there was something in me that I knew, even as like a little girl, like that it just wasn't like. Uh, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. Even the third hand version that I got from these men who served with my father. While we were down in Houston, I shared a hotel room with my mother because this is public radio and we were very worried about spending too much money, which meant I had nowhere to retreat to, nowhere I could be alone to process all of this and to cry. And there was so much to cry about because all of these men were holding and had been holding so much pain. And this time in Houston was this huge realization for me that for all the compartmentalization my father had done when he got back from Vietnam, that unaddressed pain had seeped out into parts of his life that he never intended for it to infect. This is me and my mother back in that hotel room in 2016. Steve said, 
in a letter to me at one point. Whenever someone was hurt or killed in my unit, I was the one who showed the least feelings or even thought on the subject. My whole being was dedicated to survival. Personal survival, survival of the functioning. <laughs> this is so Steve. The functioning biological unit known as Stephen McInerney. And to hatred of anyone who attempted to get near me. There are many methods and areas in which an individual can be killed. And so... I closed myself to all but the most superficial relations with others. When I returned home, I was shocked by the world around me. I journeyed from a barbaric zone of controlled brutality to a world that functioned with no real idea or concern for others. I was a superficial man thrust back into a superficial society, and it was at that point that I met you. <laughs> He buried his heart. I mean, I, I think he had to do that. And, yeah, so... That's, like, really hard for a kid to understand. I I, hard. I think it's impossible. You know... Like, when he had Ralph, I remember he was holding Ralph when we were in his house, and I said, oh, my God, you loved me when I was little. And he was like, well, no shit. I was like, no, dude. <laughs> like, it's more like, oh, shit. Like, the only way that I could, like see that is through like old pictures or like through him like interacting with my child and me imagining myself talking to all of these men it was so clear in the way their brains and bodies were in 2016 that what happened in the late 60s when they were basically boys had destroyed some version of the men that they could have been that the effects would be with them until they died, and that these effects had already trickled through their family lives in the form of domestic abuse and addiction and divorce and PTSD. When we made the Semper Fi episode, I was completely unaware of the concept of generational trauma, how the things our parents and grandparents experience affect their behaviors and their health, which in turn affects us and our behaviors and even our health. We talked about this in a series of episodes called What Happened to You. And without getting back into all the scientific background of those previous episodes, what it comes down to for me is this. That as important as it was for me to understand why my dad was the way he was, I'm only now starting to understand how his own experiences affected who I became, why I am how I am, why my siblings are the way they are, how do you think he's impacted the way you are? Oh, fuck. Uh, I mean, I, it, I think it was, it's more than I, I think I even fully comprehend, to be honest. I, I was such a reserved introverted child and I think 
that was my coping mechanism of, you know, not really feeling like, like I was good enough for my dad, you know? And, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff that is before my memory that affected my development. I, I don't know. You know, I think the first couple years of my life, he was still drinking. And I think there was a lot of yelling and fighting maybe then. I don't know. He, I, he was he was drinking. Who knows what was fucking happening? I don't know. I remember reading some things in my mom's uh, journal of me, you know, and that kind of hinted towards that a bit, you know, like Austin's terrified of the way Steve yells or something like that. Hmm. And, like, I just, I, I mean, I, so, I, so I kind of ended up doing the same thing, just collapsing inward, you know? And, I mean, you probably wouldn't say that I'm an effusive person, and it, I don't know how to deal with my feelings either, you know? I don't know. I just, like, I just retreated, and I feel like I'm the same way. I don't know if I ever came back. Oh, steam. I mean, I would be perfectly happy probably never leaving the house, you know? <sighs> like, I don't... I don't need other people the way other people do, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, can I tell you, though, that you are the best one of us? <laughs> I think that's going a little far. No, it's it's like a, it's not even that competitive, but um, it's true. Like it is true. Um, and you don't need other people, but like other people really, really need you and depend on you. And I think I've always known that. You would be that kind of person for me. My brother really is the best one of us, and it's no competition. Austin said that he collapsed in on himself, but my sister and I, we tend towards the opposite. As I've gotten older and, you know, reflected more on, like, who I am as a person, 
I think that is part of what makes me the kind of person that is kind of constantly always monitoring the like emotional energy of the room and trying to manage it. You know, like if things start to escalate, I'll often, if I'm not the one escalating it, I'll often be the one (laughs) trying to like moderate everyone's emotions and like, is, is everybody happy? Is everybody having a good time? Like, and I think it comes from that, that fear of like, kind of not knowing, I don't know, sometimes dealing with dad was like walking through a minefield a little bit and you just didn't know when you were going to step on something. And even looking at it that way is probably wrong. Like it wasn't necessarily my fault, but that's how it felt. Our father's own father was addicted to alcohol. Our father's own father hurt him physically and emotionally. Our father was an enlisted Marine before he was old enough to vote. His father had signed his enlistment papers and sent his youngest child to war at 17. By 19, our father had seen and committed nearly unspeakable acts of violence. And when he returned, it was to a different world. A world he described to our mother as superficial, a jarring change from the world of brutality he had served in. Everything in life and in this show is an exercise in both and. And yes, my dad yelled a lot, and he often made me feel small and scared and lonely. And he was also the same dad who handed me notebooks and pens and told me, write who told me to write what I know, and if I didn't think I knew anything, to write what I felt. He's the man who told me, when I woke up screaming from a nightmare, that I was in charge of my brain, that I could tell myself, no, I do not want this dream, I want another. The man whose sandpaper dry hands would find mine and quietly squeeze three times. A silent code for the words I longed to hear. I love you. We'll be right back. I wanted so badly as a child and even as an adult to know I was loved, to be loved out loud and reassured that I was what he wanted, that I was good and that I was worthy. But our father loved me in his own ways, in acts of service and quality time. He loved me by working hard and sending me to school, by teaching me to throw a baseball hard enough to make his hand sting through the mitt. By his presence, which, even when it was shitty, was constant. And I think he was a person who took, like, duty and commitment, like, really seriously. Mm. Like, that was his duty, to take care of us to like make sure we were provided for and any kind of like emotional affection was like a nice to have. (laughs) Memory is faulty. Even the act of recalling a memory degrades it and changes it. And for a while after his death, I became certain that my father hadn't told me that he loved me or had done it only sparingly, only when prompted. Like many writers, words came best to him on the page. When I moved recently, I found a letter he wrote to me when I was in first grade. 
Dad had moved from the small town we lived in briefly back up to Minneapolis to take a better job and make enough money to move us out of that weird little town that wasn't what it was cracked up to be. And while he was up in Minneapolis without us, he stayed on his brother's couch and he packed a bag lunch at an ad agency where everyone else was having three martini lunches. And he wrote me this letter. February 27th, 1990. Dear Nora Elizabeth. Side note right off the bat, turns out I never had a middle name. (laughs) He thought he named me Nora Elizabeth, but my birth certificate says uh, that is not the case. I had no middle name. So um, right off the bat, full of lies. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Dear Nora Elizabeth. I was thinking the other day how much you like to get letters, so I decided it was time I wrote you one. Even though I come home just about every weekend, we don't often get time to just sit and talk. That is probably more my fault than yours. You seem to always want to chat about something, and when I take the time to listen, I find you always have very interesting things to say, too. I thought I would tell you a bit about my day. I get up early, just like I do at home. After I take a shower and have my breakfast, I brush my teeth, comb my hair, and walk to the bus stop. The bus comes right to the end of Uncle Morris's block, so I don't have very far to walk. The bus takes me to downtown Minneapolis, where I work. I arrive downtown about 6.30 a.m. Oh my God. I have to walk about four blocks from the bus stop to my office. I like to walk downtown early in the morning. The streets are quiet and very few people are about. When I get to work, I usually take care of personal things, little tasks that I have nothing to do with work, like writing this letter. No one else is there when I arrive, and you know how I like the quiet, so this is a special time for me. By 8.30 a.m., everyone is at work and things get very busy. I have to write brochures and other things that go into the mail. They're supposed to sell things to people. Sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. It's fun. I like it. And I like the people I work with. At noon, I go out to lunch. Some days, I get something to eat and bring it back to my office. Other times, I just wander around and look in all the stores, but I never buy anything unless your mother says I can. At the end of the day, I walk two blocks to the bus stop. In the evening, the streets are crowded with people heading home for the day. My bus is seldom crowded, though, and the ride home is very peaceful. I don't read on the bus. I like to look out the window at all the people and buildings and wonder what their lives are like and what goes on behind all those windows and doors. Do you ever do that? When I get to Uncle Morris's, I go to my room and change. Then if Diane isn't home, I feed the two cats. They don't like me very much, only when I feed them. Otherwise, they run away when they see me. So, Nora Elizabeth, that is what your father's day is like. Not too exciting, is it? But it's okay for me. The only thing bad about it is that I am away from you. I miss your laughter and your happy face. I even miss your face when it is crappy. I love you very much, and you always amaze me with the charming things you say and do. Be good to your mother, Nora. She loves you very much, too. But without me around every day, she needs all of you children to pitch in and help. And you do help a lot, I know that. You are a pretty special young lady. Stay happy, Nora, and be kind to everyone. That is very important. God wants us to be good to one another. You were very good to your brother last weekend. He really wants to be your friend, and it is nice when you play with him. 
Now, there are just two things I want to ask you to do for me. Don't tell anyone else about them. They'll be our little secrets. Every morning, make your bed as neat as you can. And every night, say a prayer for your father. I love you, precious lamb. You are my little blessing from God. Love forever, Steve McInerney, your father who art in Minneapolis. Man. Megan has a letter like this, too. It's from the same era, written to her when her friend Kathy died at age 15. She didn't have it when we were talking, so I made her go through her house until she found it. Okay, Nora, I found the letter from Dad. March 4th, 1990. Dear Meg... I've decided to write you a letter, dear daughter. First, because I can't be home this weekend, and second, because even when I do come home, we don't often have much time to talk. That's not your fault or mine. You've reached the age when it is important for you to be with friends, and that's good. I've reached the age when I prefer to spend more time by myself, and that's not so good. Anyway, I want you to know that I do love you. I know at times you feel I'm overly critical of you, which I probably am, I suppose that is because I have always been very impressed with your intelligence and your social skills. That tends to create expectations. I don't mean I depend on you to find a cure for cancer or anything, but it does mean I do want you to recognize your abilities and do something with them. You are quite an amazing young woman, Meg, and I want you to know I love and appreciate you. You have always been very helpful around the house and mature beyond your years in most regards. Your mother tells me you are still troubled by Kathy's death. Few things hit harder than the first death we experience. It is like a very sudden shift in reality. Someone we know and love is not there, and the void they leave is almost overwhelming. Kathy died because of a foolish human tragedy, one of a thousand that happen every day. God didn't destroy her, humanity did. God didn't let her down, we did. When my mother died, I was living a life that disappointed her. I drank a lot and wasn't doing much with myself. When she died, I realized the pain I had caused her, and for a while despaired because I didn't think there was anything I could do about it. But I was wrong. I finally realized that if I at least tried to live my life as she raised me to, it would be a better memorial to her life than a tombstone a thousand feet high. So I keep trying to do that. Whenever anyone dies, we realize all we should have said and done for them. We feel guilty, we feel cheated, we feel a great injustice has occurred. There they are. The words of affirmation that we wanted. Not spoken aloud, but typed onto paper and signed with his fountain pen. Sometimes people think like that the most powerful form of communicating is to say something to somebody. But there's a lot that can be conveyed really beautifully in writing to somebody that's just like really gets down to, I don't know, there's something essential about it. And there was so much in that letter that I know he never could have said in words to me. And I'm glad I got to hear them. 
and that I can go back and I can read them anytime and I can hear him. Like if my house was on fire, that letter is like the only thing I would save. Those letters have always been there somewhere. We read them as our younger selves. But there's something about the death of a parent, a loss so elemental to who we are, that turns us all back into children, aching for comfort, lost. And still, seven years after our father's death, I'm not the only one of us feeling like this. You said earlier that you wondered if dad loved you or you wanted him to love you in a different way. And what I, I think, struggled with the most after dad died is I never doubted that he loved me or loved all of us because something in me knew that his way of showing love was the things that he did outside of when he would get like super mad But just like, I just knew that the sort of like daily actions that he took, the sending us to private school was really meaningful to him, Catholic schools specifically. So I knew he loved us. After he died, I found myself wondering a lot if he ever liked me. I knew he loved me because I was his daughter. But for some reason, like the only unasked question I have, which I never could have asked him, I don't think if he was alive, because he would have just rolled his eyes. But like, yeah, I do. I wonder if he liked me. Yeah. I actually read somewhere that like one of the most fucked up things you can say to your kid, which like people do this all the time, right? Is like, I love you, but I don't like you right now. And I'm like, oh, I think that's much worse. You can't say that to a kid. You know, yeah. like you can't say that to a kid. And I think like you probably just named the thing that I couldn't, which is like, of course I knew my dad loved me, but like I wanted him to like me. Yeah. 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 And there's like all these uh, like just pathetic, pathetic attempts. Um, <laughs> like all my journals, like. You know, going to college and being like writing him letters about like James Joyce. Like I gave a shit about James Joyce. I hate James Joyce. Yeah. But I knew dad loved James Joyce. I was like, I'm taking a class on Joyce. I fucking hate James Joyce. Okay. <laughs> like. My father hated the way that we demonized or deified the dead. I remember standing in the back of a wake with him after a complicated person we we knew had died and someone was eulogizing the dead in the way that we tend to do, just expounding on all of their virtues. And my dad, a little too loudly, said, oh, for crying out loud, what, now that he's dead, he's a saint? And when my own dad was dying and I was sitting on the edge of his bed talking about his own parents, I asked how he felt about his dad, who had been a binge-drinking alcoholic prone to just disappearing who had once come home drunk and knocked my father, who was 10 at the time, unconscious. My dad said, what do you want me to say, that I hate the guy? He did his best. My grandfather wasn't a saint, and he wasn't a terrible person either, and neither was my father. He contained the multitudes that Whitman wrote of, contradictions upon contradictions. 
The French philosopher Jacques Maritain, I can't speak French, I hate saying French words, please don't criticize me. He said that every man is a universe. And we are, all of us, we are exactly that. And universes are not just expansive and unending and mysterious, but dark and cold. To go too deep into who we are or why we are, it's not only daunting, but exhausting and impossible, an endless voyage through an ever-expanding cosmos. Sometime in 2019, my mother dropped off a box at my house. It was a box of my father's, filled with his files of his own writing from over the years. If I'd been told about this box before it arrived, I would have imagined myself tearing open the lid and sorting through it all immediately, canceling my plans and reading every bit of it. But I didn't do that. I placed it in the basement on a shelf in case of flooding. And when we moved, I put it on the floor of my closet slash office where I record this podcast and it stayed there. And it stayed on a to-do list of one thing. Go through dad's things. And one day, I finally did. And the first thing I picked up when I did open the box was a worn blue composition notebook with a faded cardboard cover and numbered pages. In it were notes for short stories and journal entries. The notebook starts in 1978. So September 1978, you would have been how old? Three. Three, okay. In La Crosse. Our parents had just moved from Minneapolis, Minnesota, to La Crosse, Wisconsin. My dad was about to go to rehab and get sober and change his life. And this is the first page of the notebook. Hawthorne was correct in seeing that the most cleansing confession of our sins would be to be like Dimsdale, to publicly denounce ourselves, to totally reverse people's perception of us. I often think of how little anyone knows of my most painful memories. To commit them to the page for others to see after I'm dead is tempting, but hardly satisfying. I can see in this notebook the attempts to commit them to the page, little scraps for fictional stories about a young man on leave from the Marine Corps in Australia, or returning home to a girlfriend who has moved on, or to unexpected visits from men he'd served with, threatening to reveal a secret. This much is obvious to me, from my time talking to my siblings, from paging through this notebook. There is nothing my father could have committed to the page, nothing he could have left behind, that could ever make me understand what happened or how it affected him. But I can imagine... I can imagine what it would do to a 19-year-old to do the kinds of things his faith had told him never to do. He was raised Catholic, and any kind of Christian knows that one of the top 10 rules is do not kill. Don't do it. There's not an asterisk in the Bible that says, well, unless you're in a war and someone tells you to. My father was a person who valued life, and he took lives. 
And yeah, that happened in the context of taking orders as a 19-year-old in a foreign war, but still, still, I'd never confronted that thought before 2016. Not with any seriousness, not with anything more than a passing thought. Like, I'd never had to think about, like, whether or not my dad was a good person. I still wouldn't doubt it. I never had to think about any of those stories as if there were any complication to them. You know what I mean? Oh, yes, I do know what you mean. Like, that there was any question about who did what or any blame about someone. yeah. Like, it's war. Guys get shot. Mm-hmm. Guys die. That Steve said that many times. Like, yeah. what the fuck? People yeah. get but all you, upset about like this. But... You always want something to be somebody's fault or something's fault because that's what makes sense. But I don't know. So I just think that dad didn't want to do any of this. I do know that our father loved us. And I do think he liked us, though I don't think he knew how to show that. But more than anything, I now wonder if he loved himself or if he liked himself. I do remember when dad was dying, being envious of your ability to talk to him in what felt like a meaningful way. Well, like both when dad died and and when Aaron died, I found it so difficult to speak without like breaking down. And I knew that like for dad in particular, I knew that was not what he needed in that moment was for me to lose it. And so I just was sort of present, but very quiet. But I remember at one point you saying to him that he was a good dad. And I just remember seeing or feeling this sense of like gratitude from him. And he was like, really? Was I? (laughs) I know he looked up like a literal child. And he said, really? And as I think about that moment now, it's like I think the thing that we're expressing that we wanted to know if he liked us. Like, I wonder if he felt that way, too. If he just wanted to know if we liked him. And I think that meant a lot to him that you said that. And I remember, um, you know, feeling that <laughs> sibling jealousy. Like, God damn it, Nora, that was really good. Son of a bitch. <laughs> I also think that, Dad. I also. <laughs> and you knew me eight years longer. So you were. Yeah, I was going to say that, Dad. She just, she was closer. <laughs> to build on that point, um, I would like to <laughs> to revisit what was just said. I want to just pop in. <laughs> um, but yeah, that moment when he was dying and he said, really, I think that always has really affected me because um, I hope he believed it. I don't know if he did. Mm. In the same way that I think you really beat yourself up for the moments in your own parenting when you wish you wouldn't have done or said something like I just I think there was a lot of stuff dad didn't know how to forgive himself for I think he needed to hear it 
And I'm glad he heard it because it's true. I think he was a good dad. He was the best dad he knew how to be. Yeah. There's another part to Megan's letter, a part that makes me even more grateful to have given him that assurance as he was dying. I know that someday you will decide on achieving a goal. I have no idea what that might be, but whatever it is, it will require a good education. And I know you have the intelligence and stamina to achieve any goal you set for yourself, no matter how high. You are growing up very quickly. You are a young woman now, and it won't be very long before you are off on your own. I wish we could spend more time together. Once we get settled up here, I hope we can. I realize now how precious you are to me, and I don't want you to grow up without understanding that. I know I'm difficult to be around. My temper is short and my patience is non-existent. I have to have everything the way I want it or I fly into a rage. And I'm your father. What a bummer. (laughs) But all my bluster and noise is all a big front. I'm just as confused by it all as you. You, on the other hand, Meg, have wonderful qualities, qualities that people love. You have an honest heart. You are free with a smile and a kind word, and you seldom lower yourself to pettiness. Those are the qualities of a truly great person, a person others look up to. That's why I believe you can do anything you set your mind to, and that's why I'm so proud of you. And maybe that's why I sometimes get on your back about not setting your goals high enough. Be that as it may, whatever you do, I will always love you. You are my firstborn and the one that taught me how wonderful it is to be a father. And I will always be grateful to you for that. Pray for your father. He needs it. Love forever, Dad. There's so much more in that notebook and in this box written in my father's beautiful cursive. More that seems to reflect so much of what I heard in those interviews in 2016. There is more to this relationship to my father as a person and as a dad that could ever be contained in one podcast episode. He was so, so smart. So smart. He read constantly in everything he could. He was witty and funny. And when you made him laugh, you knew it counted. He was handsome, and because I'm shallow, this is important to me. He was loyal, down to his bones. He taught my siblings and I that the most important things we had were each other, that we could not, under any circumstances, ever argue about money, that we had to be on each other's team no matter what. He wasn't just married to my mom for almost 40 years. He loved her. He taught me that marriage is more about love than romance and that love is really not that sexy. (laughs) It's not. It's just showing up for each other over and over and over again, even when your wife sells your Ford Astro van without telling you, which is a real thing that happened. (laughs) He was a man with his own hurts and his own disappointments. 
more than I can ever fully understand. To pretend that anyone is just one thing is to deny the fullness of our humanity. That we're sometimes the victim and sometimes the villain. That we can do the unforgivable and still be worthy of love and compassion and even forgiveness. That we can hurt people unintentionally and heal others without even knowing it. That we are all more than our best days or our worst ones. This box has folder upon folder of my father's thoughts and memories, things he was proud of and ashamed of, and reading them felt so hot. Every page, like, touching a stove. And I had to close it back up, push it once again to the back of my closet. Someday I will commit myself to going through all of these scraps and notes and short stories to putting it all together and turning it into something more than an episode, or maybe I won't. My mother asked me as I worked on this episode, how much do kids need to know about their parents? And I had no answer except that I didn't get enough. My own kids will have to try not to know me. And good luck to them. I am a feelings parent. I want to know how they feel. I want to help them understand their own universe as best they can. Nearly every opinion or thought I've had is written in a notebook or, regrettably, on the internet. They can know, like it or not, who I've slept with, who disappointed me or hurt me, who I myself hurt or disappointed. And I have no control over what that means to them or what it means for their relationship to me while I'm here or when I'm gone. My father wrote earlier that to commit it to the page is tempting and risky. And he also wrote this. A man's sins and guilts cannot be passed on. Events, dates, cannot tell how profoundly a thing affected a person. I learned that when nine years ago I returned from Vietnam. I was half insane, but when I tried to explain to someone what I truly felt about what I'd been through... I was merely telling war stories. I fell asleep this afternoon and had a dream. I was in a room with several mirrors. In one mirror, my hair was short and I was clean-shaven. In the second mirror, my hair was longer and I had a thick black beard. I kept alternating from one mirror to another in an attempt to learn what I really looked like. All the time, I was saying to myself, This is what it's like to go mad.
This has been terrible. Thanks for asking. I'm Nora McNerney. Our production team is Marcel Malikibu, Jacob Maldonado-Medina, Jordan Turgeon, and Megan Palmer. Our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson, and we are a production of APM Studios at American Public Media, executive producer and editor Beth Perlman, executives in charge Lily Kim, Alex Schaefert, Joanne Griffith. While we were finishing up this episode, my brother found a letter too. It was typed on a typewriter and tucked into a folder somewhere. April 13th, 1982. Dear Austin, I am sorry I've been so long in writing you. After all, you have been my son for almost six years, and this is the time that I've really taken the time to sit down and written you a letter. As you can undoubtedly see, my typing skills leave a lot to be desired. Regardless of my abilities, I hope you see that a good deal of affection for you is behind this letter. When you get a little older and wander out of my house, I hope that you remember how much your ancient potter loves to get and to send letters. So, when you march off to the Marine Corps like your father before you, or when you go off to Oxford like your older sister, please take the time once in a while to sit down in the barracks or in the college library and send off a few words to your aging parent. I, in turn, will promptly answer any correspondence you may send my way. Your affectionate father, Stephen J. McInerney.